especially things that can be cross-generational. Uh, as many of you know, that have taught before, students of mine, uh, of the gap that there is in leadership. We're also going to talk about other things, like mindfulness, also education. So I think it's going to be a, a great day. Center for Strategy Innovation is a uh, special project of Power Mentor, uh, which uh, is a national program that uh, we're assisting people going to college and doing great things and living a purposeful life. Okay, we're going to have a fun day, a good day planned for you. It should be done by five or six. Oh, I'm sorry. So, on behalf of us, Center for Strategy and Innovation, I want to just really thank you all. This will be the first of many similar type of trainings where we start looking at innovation and especially things that can be cross-generational. Uh, as many of you know that have been taught before, students of mine, uh, of the gap that there is in leadership. We're also going to talk about other things like mindfulness and also education. So I think it's going to be a great day. Uh, Center for Strategy and Innovation is a uh, special project of Power Mentor, uh, which is a national program that uh, we're assisting college and doing great things and living a purposeful life. In addition, another organization uh, called SAM, Society for the Advancement of Management, and that's another organization in collaboration. And uh, Dr. Mustafa, if you would like to come forward. Sure. Thank you.
do one more. This is going to be important. Uh, Ami and Chase, where are you at? You might come up here? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for agreeing to do this. <laughs> These guys started an organization. And the reason I really want to see this, because I want you to see what people are capable of and start innovating on their own. They started an organization called Self, and I want you to share with you about that. And what we do is that we notice that there's uh, it's a growing issue of uh, language endangerment in the world. As a current, there's 7,000 languages around the world, and if nothing is done to preserve these languages, then in the next century, they're estimating that 3,500 languages will die off. And so, um, do you want to tell us like, how we got started? So yeah, we're formed um, with um, students from the Swift Branch community in some areas around San Diego. And so we got around about 18 to 20 members. And what we basically do is operate for our website, studentlanguagepreservation.org. And um, we uh, write articles on different languages and different issues related to English university. And we also present to local schools with regards to raising words for you for our um, so yeah, one of the problems that we've been experiencing is that we need more connections. Um, because as high schoolers, it's very hard to get connections with universities and um, other organizations. Or so if you guys know like anything or if you're really interested in helping us, then please visit our website, studentlanguagepresentation.com. Uh, about for the next couple hours, three, four hours, find out. 
So when we start talking about leadership, we have to start seeing things very differently than we ever did. As soon as we catch ourselves saying, yeah, but I've always done this and I've always done that, that you should include that you're going to be very disconnected. So how do we think, how do we feel, how do we make sense of the world? And I really like what Jennifer had to say with mindfulness because that really becomes that foundational. With all the material she was talking about and with mindfulness, how we see the world, how we interact with the world, this is all tied into leadership and what strategy do we have that we can make an impact. I'm assuming that everyone in this room has a strong desire to impact the world around them. Is there anyone that does not? Most people do. What I hear from most people is, I want so bad to do this, but I feel like I keep running up against roadblocks, whether they're mostly in the workplace. A lot of roadblocks. So if all this innovation, right, and there's a roadblock. Now there's one company that's really good, they can't afford to have that kind of roadblock, and that's Google, right? Google has to be innovative because that's the dollars and cents. Google has to do everything they can to develop an innovative workforce. There's a lot of best practices you can look at from Google. So, some of the things that Google does, for example, is uh, they don't run their way into um, employee opinion surveys. Why? Because what do we do with employee opinion surveys often? We craft the questions so we can solicit a good response, so you can tell everybody we are rated as the top 50th place or whatever within the 70 places work. Google says we, we don't have to ask that, we already know. We already know the best place. Why? Because the number of applicants they get. But they also do sensing, and you know, we're talking about that here, but they do sensing, but they really get an idea of what their employees are really thinking, and they respond, they're responsive to the trends that they're seeing to help them be innovative. So it makes sense to the world, including the development of mental complexity, further up with the uh, mindfulness, and then emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is critical because oftentimes we don't know how we carry ourselves. We may not recognize how we are being perceived. So for example, if I right now start I'm continuing to talk and you all start leaving, then I have to say, I can't get mad and say I can't believe how rude the audience was. I have to say I'm disappointed in myself that I did not engage them well to be able to continue these conversations. So when I talk about education, for example, if you're really a teacher, I remember I sat on the school board years ago, and the mission statement was, all students will come to school ready to learn. We really should be all teachers, or motivate and inspire students to want to learn. Right? This whole AD, what was it called? AD what? ADHD, I'm not really familiar with that. <laughs> That's kind of a joke, maybe that knows me Anyway, in my mind, all over the place. Uh, I get hard to close my eyes to be honest. You know. You know. She's, she's one of those steady on my mind. Uh, anyway. So, when you, when you look at this emotional intelligence, um, there's a gap that I see in the workplace, for example, sometimes generationally, where there's this mindset of, I don't really care how the younger generation feels about this or that. They're going to do things the way I say, whether they do in front of a job. And those are the organizations that are going to have a major failure and set themselves up for failure. Same with education. If you want to have an innovative school, all the things that Mike talked about is what you have to do. Because people want value in their education. Exactly like he said, it's not just a diploma. That's not going to get it for you. That's helpful. It's got to be what are you doing to make some changes and be really, really um, be able to really develop yourself. So emotional intelligence. How do we get emotional intelligence? Hopefully we get it from our parents during parenting, but sometimes we don't. But critical thinking, the ability to do things like simulations, and one of the things that we're going to start doing a lot of with Center for um, 
strategy innovation is looking at doing simulations, complex issues, and getting groups together like a think tank, and, and really try to limit these complex issues. And if you apply these particular strategies, what would the likely outcome be? Those kind of things. Then to really hone our minds in, to really look at solving problems, making a difference in the world. Thought-based education, uh, emotional guidance, mentoring, coaching, job experience, obviously. Life experience is huge, self-study. Interesting with life experience. I hear people a lot of times and they say, I just don't have a lot of experiences in my life. Then create them. You have to create them. And I give you a perfect example. I had a student call me up and said, hey, uh, I have a brother that's awesome. Sit right over here. Andrew said, this guy's awesome. You gotta meet with him. We end up meeting, talking, collaborating. Amazing ideas come forward. We're gonna go up to Google and spend the day on February 13th. I think February 13th. Where are these people created? You can, you can never give up opportunity if you want to be a leader in your life. Every time you see an opportunity, you have to jump on it. There's also times you have to run away from opportunities because some opportunities may not be particularly good for you. So you have to understand, look and say, what's the outcome? You know, if I spend energy or time on this, is the likely outcome going to be something that I'm going to have a return on my investment or no? And that's something that would be uh, critical in my ability to make a decision if I'm going to do that or not. So we're talking about motivation. How do we motivate ourselves? And how do we look at motivating ourselves to rise up and try to say, I want to develop myself, be effective, employ all the things that we're talking about? How do you motivate yourself? So a really good book uh, by Daniel Pink uh, called Drive, maybe he's got a chance to read it. He did some research and he was really, really well done. Talked about three key things <coughs> autonomy, mastery, and purpose. That's simple. That's why in the workplace, especially, and this is especially true with Gen Y and Gen X, but even for baby boomers, just in a little different way. This is why the Gen Y and the Gen Xers feel oftentimes micromanaged in the workplace. Because this word autonomy has very significant meaning. Autonomy meaning, I want to direct my life. I want to direct what I want to do. I would like you to tell me, Kevin, we need this as an end result. Can you accomplish this? Yes. All right, go to it. And let me collaborate with the group and go find the ideas. And if I don't accomplish it, then fire me. Or mark me down that uh, I didn't accomplish this particular goal, maybe I will another goal. But give that to me. The problem is, oftentimes, what we see is, we want you to go do this, this is what we want you to accomplish, and here's how you're going to do it. And in this big, long, drawn out micromanagement plan, here's how you're going to have to do it. And it's because that person, in their mind, thinks that they are the only one they can really make sure that this happens. By doing that, it, what? it totally disengages the person. So when we talk about engagement, part of that engagement is allowing people to have a stake in it, have a skin in the game. Mastery, people want to get better. I mean, think about it. How many of you woke up, be honest, how many of you woke up this morning and kind of contemplated, I'm not sure if I'm gonna to go to this thing? Be honest, raise your hand. I wasn't gonna contemplate. <laughs> no, you know, there's times that we contemplate something, right? If something comes up and you go, you know what, and, and then we rip ourselves off, okay? When you look at the different organizations, people pulling together, you know, uh, women inspiring leaders, you have to jump on these things. Now, to a good example, Courtney and Cassie had all these people, oh, let's all do it, let's all do it. And guess who did all the work? Out of all the people, two. As a leader, you have to realize you're going to lob it off them. And that's okay, that's okay. But this master is really want to get better. And purpose, what's the purpose? What's the meaning for the existence of your life? You have to ask yourself that. Because if you have no purpose, your life will not be sustainable. It's going to be very difficult. 
What is the reason for your existence? So for example, for me, ADHD, that's the story of my life, right? So for me, I'm very passionate about, um, I, I was the special ed kid. I was the one that said when we were working in fast food restaurants, that we never would be able to go to college. It was not college material. So my passion is to do for others what I wish would have happened to me. Because what I was having happen was the teachers talking to my mom in my presence saying, Kevin has special needs. Kevin should be all these little things. And I'm thinking, like, I'm right here listening to this. I want somebody to tell me, actually, no, Kevin, you can do it, Mike. You can do it. We're with you. We believe in you. Focusing on what's right instead of what's wrong. And purpose can do all sorts of things. Because everyone in this room has something that you have that others know. And how can you put that together and start using that, which also drives you? So, challenge versus opportunities in generations. How many of you raise your hand experienced issues that you would attribute to generational gaps in the workplace? Raise your hand. Okay. Now, I speak a lot on Gen Y uh, to Gen Yers, and I speak to basic workers about individuals. Gen X, we get along with everybody, we just get forgotten. Um, we're there. But we don't have, you know, we're kind of able to bridge the gap between Y and baby boomers. But when I talk to baby boomers, they do bring up legitimate issues from Gen Y that Gen Y miss that if they can kind of tweak it a little bit, they can help bridge that gap between themselves and baby boomers. Likewise, baby boomers have to understand some things as well that they're not maximizing the potential of Gen Y. One of the greatest things with Gen Y, I think Mike talked a little about it, purposeful. Gen Yers will take a pay cut in order to have autonomy. They're not necessarily into the money. They want to have a meaningful purpose. Like they want to know that they're making a difference. You can't buy that kind of stuff. <coughs> and you can hone in on that, develop them, and pay them well for what they're doing. Imagine that. So there's a little video that's cute. It's only like an hour and a half. Uh, <laughs> it's very short. I saw this because they, they've shown this in, in different classes. Because you have to understand, Many organizations to see this is one of the greatest dilemmas right now is this generational issue. Uh, and so this is a cute little bit of fire. I'm a baby boomer. And I'm Generation Y. I like to serve dedication to my employer by working really long hours. I don't really feel like I need to work long hours as long as I get my work done. I'm excited when my work day starts. I'm excited when my work day ends. I like to have meetings in person. I prefer email or voicemail. I've worked hard to climb the corporate ladder. I should already be at the top of the ladder. I mean, I have a degree. I put in 60 hours at the office last week. I'm taking a month off to go hiking in Malaysia. <laughs> I have a sense of entitlement. Oh, so do I. Hey, hey. I like Maxwell House. Oh, I prefer Starbucks. I just got a Facebook account. Oh, Facebook, good for you. Minnesota 2009. <laughs> I like competition. I prefer collaboration. I've heard of that. Oh, and he doesn't know this, but I plan on getting his job when he retires. <laughs> so easily. Well, only because we're practically playing video games in our cribs. Yes, that's true. You did have a different upbringing, though. My parents are still married to each other. Yes, self-esteem. We thought that was very important, so we tried to pump your generation full of it, which is why for everything you've got a participation ribbon. You know, we can use a little more of that here at work. I mean, does anybody ever say, hey, thanks for coming to work on time. Good job getting your work done. No, it's just like it's expected or something. <laughs> it is by the 
baby boomers. And I'm Generation Y. And, and we're Generation X, so we're stuck in the middle of all of this. <laughs>
um, for organizations who realize that they are going to really have a shortage of the talent that they need to stay competitive. And that's why you come in saying, I want to be the strategic leader. So just pretend for a minute that you are your organization. Pretend you have your organization and you have people working for you. The reality is the people you're going to pay attention to are the people that are what? Benefiting your organization. Right? One of the downsides is when the guy talked jokingly about self-esteem with Gen Y, one of the challenges with Gen Y is there is a propensity to want something for nothing at times. And the reason that comes from it is it comes from a lot of the self-esteem issue in school, where you draw a swimming line and they go, oh my God, that is magnificent, that is incredible, just a line. And the person's like, really? They just drew a line and they're thinking all that? I don't have to do anything, right? So you have to really shake it off and say, you have to actually be an asset in your organization when you work. As a leader, I hear people all the time, they say, I, I want to be a leader, I want to be a leader, and then I ask them, how many people are you leading in your personal life? How many people are you mentoring? None. And you're not a leader. Leader isn't something you just step into one day and say, I'm going to be a leader today. Leader is your presence, who you are, who you are in your presence. When people look up to you, the only way they don't look up to you is because they see that you're helping develop them and that you believe in them more than they believe in themselves. And that's the very thing that bosses have to learn to do. They have to start finding out, especially baby boomers, what's going right instead of always what's going wrong. Those kind of things. So how do you do that? If you're in an organization and you have a boss that doesn't seem to be doing that, how do you do that? Can you manage up? You can. I think you can. I think you can try to manage up. But it's going to take a long time. You know? I've had uh, people say, my, my parents this or that, and they need to know this, they need to know that. And I say, do you really believe they're going to change? After all these years, they're now in their 70s and 80s. Probably not. Right? Just like all everybody. You can't just change overnight. But part of it is, can you see your boss differently? Studies actually have shown that Gen Y actually look up to baby boomers a lot, and that's why they get let down a lot. They actually see them almost like grandparents. They, they really look up to them, and they want so badly to be mentored by them, but then the, the uh, baby boomer, it's hard for them to relate, because they're seeing it as, what does this person want from me? Why are they trying to get close to me? They want a job. They want they all these different things that go through their minds. Right? So, 86% of companies with strategic leadership development programs are able to respond to changes in business environments compared to 52% who are not. So what does it mean to be strategic? How do you define strategic? So they're strategic in the classroom. They might talk about the APA Nazi, and I know there are students in here going, I look good, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I saw, I saw the guys looking at each other, like, where is he, that's what he's doing. Uh, but there, there is a time that you have to kind of get to know your teacher. And can students manage a teacher up in the classroom? You ready? What do you say? Which time do you think you can manage up a teacher and help change a teacher's behavior in a classroom? Yes? Only a few? Now, something happened years ago. Uh, this friend of mine, uh, I subbed for him at San Diego State, and uh, the class was telling me that this particular professor, like, he walks back and forth, like, from one end of the lecture hall to the other. He's always walking back and forth. And that he's always telling them that he can never change him. No one's capable of influencing him. 
And so we played a little trick, and I told them, you know, do you think you can influence him? Because they were telling me that the guy was not a great teacher. He puts him to sleep. He's not engaging. His mentality was, you're odd to be in my presence, so just be thankful that you actually to sit in this room while I lecture. So the game that they played, I told them, was whenever he wanders towards the right side of the room, start getting everyone, if you start getting a puzzled look on your face, you know, like you're shut, you're confused. A couple of you that are bold enough, raise your hand, I don't really understand. And as soon as you go to the left side, uh, be nodding your head, affirming everything that he's saying, totally engaged, totally interested. And I guarantee you, you will find this guy that he says wanders back and forth, he will gravitate to see on that left side of the room. And that's exactly what happened. You can impact and influence behavior. So with teachers, for example, if you ask the right questions to teachers, you can trigger things to engage them. Because oftentimes, teachers are walking into the classroom, especially if they've been out of the workforce for a while, they may be thinking they don't have a whole lot to offer now, especially when all the latest and greatest things you're talking about, they're like, oh, I'm like, my staffs. I mean, I thought I was in the house, and I'm like, I've never heard half of those. You know, some people get a little bit afraid of that. Same thing with the boss. How can you engage the boss? So I'll just tell you some tips, tips and tricks like for me that I'm trying to do to navigate through that. And the first thing is trying to really understand what is my boss's goals? What, are their, what is their purpose in the organization? What are they trying to accomplish? And then I have to say, I have to help them accomplish those goals. End of story. Because they hired me. You hear that saying, you don't fight the hand that feeds you? If you really look principally, that really is the issue. Unless they want you to do something ethically you know, illegal, unethical, something like that. Or I have to make a decision and say, I can't work under this, maybe I have to go somewhere else. Now, how can I impact them? I can start collaborating with them. And instead of saying, like, I want to do this, I can ask and say things like, I wonder if this were to happen, I wonder maybe if it could help this or it could help that. And you have to try little things and see what works. And what works, you do more of. What doesn't work, you do less of. We talk about mindfulness with Jennifer. This is a perfect strategy when you're trying to be mindful, trying to hone in and focus on things. It's really critical to be intuitive of what reactions you get when you're trying to deploy particular strategies in the workplace or anywhere for that matter. That make sense? Competencies. What kind of competencies do you think future leaders are going to require? And this is based on research that they say effective leaders of the future. Must be highly strategic thinkers now more than ever. It is so complicated in the workforce. So complicated. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. I always think, because I'm in healthcare, I go, oh, well, healthcare is so complex. And then I talk to people in education and go, oh, I didn't know you guys were dealing with that. Oh, oh okay. And I talk to people in other, other industries and here, and it's everywhere. It really is. Uh, able to focus on complex problems and opportunities. I think the real issue is. Can you actually resolve and solve problems in the workplace? That's where you become an asset, right? If you're mentoring people, what's your, what's your whole thing? You're trying to help people grow, which is solving a problem that they have and that they don't want to do where they're at, they want to grow and become better or whatever. But those things you can measure by. Uh, superb, inspiring communicator with excellent people skills, risk-oriented, and deeply collaborative. Being able to have that collaboration, what does that mean? Uh, when you're talking collaboration, you, you have to stop saying, this is who I am, this is how I am. That's how you tell it to me. Well, it's just how I am, take it or leave it. Right? You teachers may say that. Well, that's just how I teach. You really have to say, it's irrelevant how I think I am. The real issue is how I'm being perceived. 
Is it effective? Right? A teacher in the classroom, how do they know they're effective? Is it just they give you grades? Evals? They think that, but some students will just not do the eval. Or when they do the eval, it's kind of, you know, hit or miss. I mean, you can use evals. Students, are the students engaged? Do the students, I'll tell you that the true measure, in my opinion, of a teacher is do students feel comfortable asking you really critical questions and asking you to help them really think through things, like in the workplace, those kind of things. That gives you an example that there's a pretty good collaborative partnership there. If that's not happening, then you're merely going in and lecturing or whatever you're doing, but you're not connecting with them. Because education is not just about the material, it's about changing people's lives. It's about seeing people do great things in their life that they dreamed of, and you're going to be a little piece of that puzzle to help them get there. So this is kind of a neat little model here. Connecting strategy, goals, meaningful purpose, discovering better ways of working, constantly always analyzing yourself. Delivering value efficiency to the customer, enabling people to lead and contribute to their most potential. These really are, are just so solid, but yet we forget about these things. We forget that these are so critical. So for example, what I've done today, I'm going to be mindful on thinking, how do these go today? What could I do better? What about this? What about that? Always be briefing. Right? In the workplace, you have a challenging situation with someone, we oftentimes will attribute it the challenge was with them, not us. As opposed to me saying, I wonder if I could have done something differently, could have been really affected this differently. Right? All of those kind of things. I'm really looking deep inside what could I have done differently. Because I can't change anyone else. I really only truly can affect myself. There's nothing I can do for anybody else. The goal. Develop future leaders one person at a time. And our goal uh, with Center for Strategy Innovation is very simple. Collaborate. I'm sorry, capable of breaking through barriers. All the barriers that you see, some of them are generational. Uh, cultivating high impact innovation. And what does that really mean? What does it mean to be innovative? And you heard stories of that with you know different people here today, the things that Mike was talking about, uh, which I can tell you there's so many classrooms that I know for a fact those kind of things are not happening, and they should be. Should be it should be everywhere, it should be the standard. Building high trust relationships. How do we build high trust relationships even with people that we don't think understand us? If we can't develop a strong relationship with our boss, jobs are in trouble. Because again, they saw something in you and brought you in, and now it's your job to try to collaborate, try to develop that. And again, if it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. And if there's any damage, you're better off finding something that's a better fit. Acting with deep courage. Now, what does that really mean, deep courage? As a leader, you have to be courageous. And sometimes you have to say things that people may not want to hear. And sometimes that's part of the problem is, is we say things and we just tell people things that they want to hear. Oftentimes I'll encounter people and uh, I'll share with them. You know, they'll ask me, tell me what you think of the way I'm doing this or that. And I say, I always ask them first, you know, are you sure you want me to tell you? And I say, yes. I mean, it may not, you know, it may not be something you want to hear. No, I want to hear it. And I say, you know, what if the impression is this or this or this, and I wonder if you did this, if that might really be that. You'd be surprised how many people say, never heard that before. I remember before I was in Charlotte, when I was at Scripps, they put a manager working for me uh, as a challenging person. 
and they tell me every Sunday how bad this person is, and I pull the performance evaluations for four years. I said, no, this person's awesome. What are you talking about? Because all the performance evaluations were incredible. Because no one wanted to deal with the aftermath of that critical. But the problem with that is how can you expect someone to change if you're not telling them the truth? Right? And then after you tell them the truth, she ended up becoming very high performing. So that's a critical thing having to encourage ability to transform organizations, ability to transform yourself. And an organization's approach that I think is very, very uh, effective for all of our leaders, model the behavior you want to see. That's not as simple as that. If you want things from others, you have to connect with people, right? You have to have that interaction. You have to build that connection with people, and you have to involve them in things, which means what autonomy, right? And that's the engagement model that, that we believe is very, very effective. And for an individual approach, formal education, that's huge, right? But you also have to make sure you select education where you're growing where you're not just going there and saying, I hope they let me out early today so that I can just leave. You have to say, are we, are we engaging in things that I walk out of here and think differently, or I see things differently? Effective mentoring, if you don't have a mentor, you should try to find a mentor. Uh, you should also be mentoring others. You'd be surprised how much you will grow from mentoring others. By teaching others, you teach yourself. Uh, the experiential and then being introspective, all the things that we're talking about today. Mindfulness, seeking out different methodologies that we teach you might want to talk about. So, experiential, they shape our thoughts, ideas, and I love this quote here. Leadership is about making others better as a result of our presence and making sure that impact lasts in our absence. That to me is the end measure of really, uh, if you're a leader, then you will see that. So, with that, uh, I'm going to uh, invite. Mike, Jeff, to come up and we can do the panel. And I'm going to send the microphone. Um, so, anybody have questions? Yeah, I hope that's going to take some of that just real fast in the presentation. Okay. Uh, how do you lead employees that can't respect you? I would say instead of trying to find out how to do that, you have to ask yourself why they don't respect you. Um, for me, that's the bigger issue is why are they not respecting you? What they have to say is if one person doesn't respect you, they need to be down. If two people don't respect you, if three people don't respect you, you have to realize the issue. And so you have to go, I have to make a change. Uh, anything to add or post on that question? Most effective style in uh, healthcare, situational leadership. What do you think about situational leadership? This is style of leadership. Anybody? Any comments on that? Uh, I, I think when you look at things like situational leadership, it kind of ties back into what Kevin was uh, kind of presenting there at the end of this presentation with those individuals that have a high level of emotional intelligence. The ability to react and respond to the audience in which you are working with. Those leaders, we don't typically refer to the employees or the individuals that report up to us as an audience. But they really are the audience. We look at things like marketing, right? We can't just market to everybody. We have to market to the target audience. That's what they refer to. And who is that ideal client? Well, you want ideal performing employees. You want to be able to respond to them and to coach and guide them in the direction that you need them to move. But you have to understand that first. You can't just always be disseminating information down. So when you look at the, at, at 
the opportunity for you to be more of a situational leadership. You have to be fluid and flexible to adapt to the audience and what the circumstances are in that particular situation. Students from all the different generations. The the quote old, like uh, Michael Beavis is, very young, like I am. <laughs> and you have to manage somehow that multi-generational student body in a way that that everyone learns, or most people learn. What's your what's your suggestion from from the faculty perspective? How do I manage that? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. That's actually what kind of started me down the path that, that I was on with doing some of the research that I did. Because as you know, Tony, a lot of the, the students uh, that we end up teaching are across a very wide array of generations. 
Uh, you saw some of the videos and, and some of the differences there. And it's hard to keep everybody engaged in the same process, in the same learning models. The same in, in uh, corporate society. And that's actually why we try to roll up everything today and on more of a broad level. But some of the questions that you're asking really needs to be kind of developed a little further and have a, a much more extensive uh, conversation on that specific topic um, beyond what we can cover here. But bottom line is that what it really comes down to is that engagement piece, right? And so if you kind of combine the concept that we talked about with engagement and the concept of this emotional intelligence, which is a whole other channel that we didn't get to really dive into today. Um, and I'm now looking at certain things like how experiential learning actually helps boost emotional intelligence scores, not just in students, but in executive leaders themselves. And so that's where some of my doctoral dissertation research is and things like that. And then you couple in uh, Dr. Medina's approach to the mindfulness concept so that you can be fully aware of what your role is in that, in that responsibility and how you can engage each of those individuals differently uh, to, to accomplish the same task. And right before I came here to this, I was having a uh, fantastic conversation with a, a two-star general. And I asked him point blank, I said, what's the difference between leadership in the military and leadership in corporate America? Because you've held high-level, C-level type positions in corporate America since you've been retired from the military. What's the difference? And he says, he said to me, he said, well, in corporate America, he says the knives are a lot sharper because the stakes are so much smaller. And what he was trying to get across to me was that in the military, obviously the stakes are very high, right? Because if you don't effectively lead people, people could lose their lives, right? In corporate America, he says, fortunately, people don't typically lose their lives based on decisions that you make, but you have to make these decisions with a great amount of care because they can kind of spin out of control on you if you don't pay attention to the stakes. And so, again, it kind of is, breaks it down into being able to identify the uniqueness of all the individuals that make up your team and how you motivate them and drive them towards one common goal. And I think it ties back into the classroom and that's where, uh, again, just from a personal experience standpoint where I've seen great success, and actually, it's, it's funny that I presented on a bunch of this technology and apps, and the, the interesting thing is that the people that tend to embrace it more are the older generations in the classroom. Because it's new, it's very new and fresh and unique to them. Whereas the younger population is saying, oh, cool apps, I know apps. This app isn't really that exciting compared to my app that I use for my personal things, but they understand the concept, so the learning curve is steep. So, so, so you brought up another variable now. You brought in the military. And now we've got the multi-generational, and we have people coming back from Iraq and other places who are, uh, or have a difficult time transitioning to civilian life. And so now we're compounded with some emotional issues. And the fact the member isn't necessarily trained to deal with those issues that come to, come to bear in class. Any suggestions? Obviously, I'm, I'm begging for some hints here because I face these things as, as, as a family member. Just, I just wanted to tell him what Jennifer Medina's hourly rate is. Heartiness. <laughs> 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 I want to address first on your first question. Um, 
what crosses all generations is to engage people and need to know what they're trying to do in their life. So when you engage students, when you can get emails from your students saying, I'm trying to accomplish this, but here's a barrier I did, that's why it's the remark, because that crosses anything as far as engagement. And we have that where students know, no matter what, I can get some answers. As far as military, it's a challenge for my country, real quick. Kevin, I'm going to put you on the spot right there. So, uh, they've been talking about the scouts retired from the military, and he's uh, focused on, on looking at that. How do you help people transition, especially from PTSD and all those kind of things? Can I shed a little light on that? Sure, I think you're a very important point. I think one of the things that we can see is that 30 years we've been made. Uh, one of the things you need to look at when people retire, uh, either separate from the military, it's basically one of the earth. Uh, not only that, the number of the family. I think one of the big things we do in the military is we don't really prepare our military members. That whole adage of uh, plan and fail, fail the plan. We don't really think about that in the military. I just said, being a leader, my job was basically to make sure I got people out doing the job, doing the mission, make sure they prepare. I really think about these people coming back separately. That's a big issue for us in the military right now and society. I think sitting down make sure we meet their needs, uh, not only that serve them, but their families. That's a very important point that we miss a lot in the military. We don't send out those family members to see where they are and to see what level they are. The military does a great job of training them to go do the mission for the, for the government. We don't prepare them for that day after the military. That's what we feel right there. So I think we still have to find ways to bridge that gap. But once we uh, work on that, that's what I think uh, it good ends there. And I think one of the things is like workshops, for example, like Jeremiah right here actually just left the military in Alabama and kind of collaborate and I encourage anyone in institutions education um, maybe with them before you leave because they can do it that great thing and actually coming in and presenting and having uh, helping plan workshops for the military people. Uh, I've done workshops on, on helping them transition into civilian workforce because that's a challenge, that whole other challenge. Leadership in the military is so very different that oftentimes uh, leaders get set up for failure from the military to go that civilian. Uh, branch is very, very different. So, anyways, thanks for coming up here, and I encourage you to Kevin, I just want to bring up one quick thing because I think as we talk about broad education, one of the things that we did by setting up the International Doctoral Mentoring Group, Empowerment Group is the importance of mentorship because I think one of the things that everybody forgets about is that probably many, many years ago, the University of Phoenix, when they came up with the teams that either people like or they don't like, there's no in-between, is that that's a form of leadership, that's a form of empowerment, that is a form of mentoring, not just each other, but that uh, professor that's there is mentoring, it's all about mentoring. So what I, and this is kind of basically for all three of you is, We've gone into 2015 now, so we're in the education where doctoral degrees are online, it's all on the computer, we're using that technology, but where are we missing that connection of that physical face-to-face -face mentoring ship? So I would say, I mean, I have just as much effective mentoring via um, electronic, via email, via text messaging. Uh, I actually use that a lot just because it's, it's too hard. Um, Especially one-on-one mentoring is very, very challenging. Face-to-face, -face, I think, got to group type of mentoring because it is challenging to find people that actually want to mentor. But I've had some of the most meaningful conversations, especially with military guys who are looking to be away, through text messages. 
uh, through through chatting with them and then just typing and, and oftentimes can say things that they would be hard for them to say face to face. On the other hand, when they come back, there's times that there's some really great times in face to face. So I think it, it just depends. Um, you know, just the other day, Andrew and I were texting back and forth, and there were very profound things that were going back and forth. It was like they were meaningful. And when you talk about mindfulness, you know. For me, when I mentor people, I'm not really mentoring them, they're mentoring me. And I have to see it that way, because I'm actually learning um, from them, and I'm also reinforcing anything that I may be trying to teach them, I'm actually reinforcing it for myself, like, yeah, yeah, don't forget that. So my point of that is, I think face-to-face is important, per se, um, and I know it's a, it's a gap in the workplace, because everyone's saying, you know, we're on their phones, texting, on, on, on. So there is a means of definitely having face-to-face communication, but I think there's also a difference in mentoring to help someone move their life and someone who learn to have people skills and to be able to communicate effectively. Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic question because, again, that's where the, the, the trend is. Now, look at things like business as an example. Forrester just uh, put out uh, their annual report back in December on the increase of marketing spend that organizations are gonna to have to reach their customers. And they're gonna increase their marketing spend in one particular area, and it's mobile, right? It's because everybody is out there on their digital devices, and you have to be able to go out and find customers where they are. You have to meet them where they are. The old age of bringing them into the retail location isn't working, right? You saw the augmented reality video that I showed there. That's how people are, are going through their process. So we look at it from the standpoint of education and the same kind of thing. You think, okay, well now we're in this digital space. We lose that face-to-face interaction with individuals because that's really where the meaning and the connection is, right? But not so much if those individuals are actually more connected and more comfortable in their digital environment. So I know Darren up here has, uh, is, is making a transition in the educational field and, and developing podcast type technology that gets integrated into the curriculum because that way the students can constantly have opportunities in various channels in order for them to reach the content in different ways. Uh, there's probably not very many people in this room that know more about mentoring than Kevin. Um, but the research is very strong on what mentorship does for you. And as an educator and as an employer, I don't really care as much about the degree that you have. Yeah, I said that right. So it's not so much that you have this fancy degree or that you got a degree from a fancy college or whatever the case is. I want you to have that education because the fact that you were able to be successful in that process tells me something about your character and your staying power. But at the end of the day, what I want to know is what can you do? Show me that you can do it, right? So the experiential learning thing, which is a huge passion for me right now, is be, is something, the way that I'm implementing it is so that our students who graduate can actually come out and participate in an interview successfully. Right? Because a lot of times students go back to school to retool themselves, to rebrand themselves, to make a career change if they're doing that. They want to do something different. And what happens? Every interview question leads with, tell me about a time when you... And what happens? Well, I've got an eight in my accounting class. <laughs> That's not very convincing as an employer, right? But now, as a student, you can say, well, 
my mentor hooked me up with this experiential project, and I actually set up the accounting system for this nonprofit. Have you heard of them? Let me tell you about this, this organization, but let me tell you about the work that I did in order to make that happen. And as an educator, I'm able to use that experience to measure uh, the objectives that I need to cover in a particular class. Does that meet the objectives of an accounting 280 class? Probably does. Right? Much much more so than writing a paper on Southwest Airlines or Starbucks or Walmart. Plus, back to Tony's original question, it sure makes it a lot more enjoyable for me as the instructor to be able to teach all these different individuals on all their personal passions and their individual projects that they're working on in order to show me that they have the aptitude that I need to be able to pass them on. But I really like to just point um, linking mentorship and leadership, and I struggle with the technology piece sometimes too. It, and the, the field of psychology does because it feels like there's a connection. Um, so I, I hear a little bit of what you're saying. It's how do we stay connected as a leader and a mentor with all this technology? And I think it can be a challenge, but it can be an asset. I think it boils down to the integrity of the leader and the mentor. So we're gonna we're in like the times are changing, right? And they're changing quickly. So there's all this cool stuff to help us connect. But if you maintain your integrity as a mentor and use your your skills to stay connected, whether it's Skype or text or email or in person, I think the constant is your integrity and, and, and what you're putting out there and how you're connecting. Jennifer, real quick, before you hand that mic, real quick, I guess one of the questions that we've all had that we've, we've, we've studied and stuff is when we're looking at the process of education, whether it would be my son that's young and innovative and is all into technology versus maybe the military person that's been in the military for 18, 20 some odd years and he's not into that technology, what have we learned in a nutshell about how people, when we mentor them, are accepting that mentorship back? What's important there? Does that kind of make sense? What have we learned that technology, in other words, the young person that's never done an interview that we're trying to teach them how to do an interview to be successful in getting a job, versus we've done all of this technology and they've learned everything online, and that's a good thing. But now, have they still lost the interviewing skill? I think interviewing is, is a huge one. That's probably the, the greater issue than face-to-face. But again, I would say, you know, for me, as a leader, I have to say, am I relevant or irrelevant? So my style is based on the changing times. So for example, the other night, Andrew and I had a, we were gonna have a Google Hangout with a guy at Google. But the guy at Google couldn't get his Google Hangout to work. So he and I were on Google Hangout and he joined via the phone, you know. It was kind of funny, I thought to me, because I was figuring the Googler would be really into that Google Hangout. Um, but, you know, the face-to-face is one thing, but the problem with it is it's a disconnect. If I start hammering Gen Y, this is what typically happens to Gen Y, uh, is every time you know you, you don't have any people skills you don't have this you don't have and again I'm talking what's wrong with them rather than what's right with them so how I focus it on person skills to start with people is imagine if you were able to connect in person with people in the workplace to share with them the great things that you have to offer 
So if I come at them where there's a big gap of, because to be honest with you, um, it's, it's just an issue. My mom is 82 years old and is on her iPad and never thought she'd be doing that. Now she's so on her Facebook, you know, that she's all into that. Um, that's where it's moving for everybody. And some people are hanging on to the past. And, and to be honest with you, if you're forward thinking, you have, you have to be able to adapt and change. One of those adaptations is to know that face-to-face -face communication is very different than what it used to be. It's global. Um, I just did a Skype uh, conference call from somebody in Europe. That's just how it is. And so I don't necessarily see it as a barrier as much as baby boomers have had a difficult time with it. See it. For example, in the workplace, many companies now do interviews over the phone. In fact, most companies uh, spring, probably the first two or three interviews are all, all on the phone call now. That never used to be. Now they're, they're waiting until they really think they want this person. And then they say, here's a panel interview. So it's relevant in the classroom, for example. Now I say, okay, hiring process, phone interview, you knock that out. Now, how do you handle a panel interview? But there's relevance to the people because they see not just what they have to know, I have to show them why you have to know this. If I can't convince them of the why, the what is completely irrelevant, if that makes sense. Other questions for anybody? Yes. So, So I have a question for you, Kevin, primarily about mentoring again. So I'm a big proponent of being a mentor, and I agree with you that you learn from your mentees. However, I'm wondering what your thought is about when you should start mentoring someone, because creativity is a big issue that you're pushing. And I assume that there could be a risk of diminishing someone's creativity if you come on strong as a mentor too early because anybody haven't had a chance to establish really who they are, their own purpose yet. And it's so easy to think this man or this woman knows so much that I basically just want to emulate. And it almost can take on like a cult of personality type effect. So I wonder what the thoughts are on that. It's funny that you ask that because I experienced that on my Google Hangout call. So <laughs> give you an example. My, my principle is this. First of all, I don't do any formal mentoring. It's all informal. Formal mentoring to me is too clinical. It's kind of like you go to a counselor. No offense. Time goes up. All right. Thank you very much. It has that feeling. So for me, it's informal. And, and I'm always really big on telling someone. Um, I am not going to make decisions for you. I'm not going to decide. What do you think I should do? What do you think you should do? Let's walk through it. So in this particular case, Andrew says, I really want to help people. And right away, Trevor goes, join the Peace Corps. Okay, Jimmy, he starts throwing out all these things. And I'm just like, no, no, no. Because they're closely against everything of what you're talking about. And I think that comes from maturity. The problem is some people mentor others to create many themselves. And you can't do that. Mentoring is the ability to just influence people. And the first ground rule, at least for me, is is I'm just there to be a coach and a cheerleader for you. I believe in you. I think you've got great things. I'd love to see that come alive. You tell me how I can be a resource. So how it's evidenced in here, for example, Jeremiah and Calvin didn't know each other until today. Both of them have been striving for similar things in the hearts that they have for military integration. So I go, hey, you guys should meet them. There you go. That, that's mentorship. So to me, I see mentorship as operationalized, very, very efficient, very, very um, meaningful as far as there's how it comes from it. Um, you know, Cassie, Courtney, connecting, them, connecting people so that they're passionate, then someone starts um, seeing that what they have going on in their life is relevant. Because oftentimes, 
mentoring really needs to be helping someone realize that there's something great about them that they don't think may be that great. Um, but there is huge danger in having a mentor. That's why I tell people, don't let your boss be your mentor. That's the worst thing because then they have an inherent desire to please you because you're the one that gives them the pay raise at the end of the year. So you're prone to start doing whatever the boss tells you. And the same thing with parents. Uh, I was on a Vietnamese TV show not too long ago. Uh, we talked about this because there's a huge issue where parents start telling their kids what you're going to do. So here's what you're going to be either attorney or you be a doctor. There's no option here. And then all of a sudden, that person drops out of medical school because they really didn't have a passion for it. They really wanted to be an artist. The family's concerned about the financial stability of being an artist. And so you have all that. And the parents mean well. They're not doing that look at intent. I always tell people, your parents mean well, they love you. But the parents have to understand what's going to happen when you're no longer here. So yeah, you know, you're, so that, that is a big issue. And so I, that's why I, I you know, careful on the whole mentoring thing. Um, but the other thing I always do is when I mentor someone, one of the first things is, as soon as they start telling me about somebody special in their life, like in Andrew's case, it's his brother Alex, right away I'm telling you what well, you should be doing for him. So you're always like constant passing on that multi-level mentoring strategy kind of thing. Because then it now it likes, now Andrew's going to have to be an example for Alex because if he starts telling him things, he's going to walk that talk. That's that's done. And the same thing for me, it keeps me accountable if I'm telling somebody something. If I'm telling him, Chloe is going to engage you, but I want to engage him. Does that make sense? Does that answer? It does. It is a challenge, you know, and you have to check yourself because, you know, I used to fall into it a lot, and, and now I'm really, really careful about it because I had people say to me, yeah, I made this decision because years ago you told me this, and I'm not even remember telling them that. It just it, it made me concerned because I'm like, I, I told I don't remember telling you that. And so now I'm like really cautious because of that. Another factor that I'm they're never going to teach you about that aspect. Yeah. Having five, you know, four or five hundred students, and then I'm in the office and all of a sudden, you're basically, I mean, really, you're there. See, mine is real convenient. Mine are text messages and emails. And I make emails powered out of my mind because I can't be mindful, and so I'm hoping to ask Text me when all these meetings go on so I can do a couple things and not be disengaged. Somebody, and you can't be afraid to tell someone, 
Do you know that you are an amazing public speaker? Okay? Right? What does the whole class say about this guy? Well. <laughs> so this guy, when he presents, it's just so natural and just, you know, he does these little things. Then you're just like, wow. We have to call him out on it and tell him. He may not know unless we tell him, you know. Yeah, just real quick, any other questions that people that are missing? Just to, anybody? We have an open mic here. Okay, I just want to make sure everybody gets it because I didn't know. Is that a hand? Oh, Brian, go ahead. I just can't hear this question. She has a question. My question is actually for all three of you. Um, when you're in, in an organization with, with, which is experiencing explosive growth, how do you, um, for Jennifer, how do you, would you recommend to implement a mindfulness program for a team? And as far as the education standpoint, how do you prepare your students um, to prepare for that particular environment and how they can manage it as new employees? And then as a leader, how do you continue to keep your, uh, your staff and your team engaged when you're going through, when it feels like you're just constantly putting out fires instead of just managing the chaos and grow, growing with it? What I'm seeing with the mindfulness. Do we have any bigger questions? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll just make this together. Um, what I'm seeing in the mindfulness, when the organizations are implementing mindfulness, they're making it structured. Um, I mentioned, you know, giving a 20-minute break, so it can be informal like that. Um, to, you know permission to give your employees a mindful, a mindful lunch break or a mindful afternoon relaxation break. Um, many of the organizations, especially the healthcare organizations, are doing eight-week structured programs where it's built into the workday, um, they're online, so they're very accessible. Um, so there are, there are people who implement these who, who go out into organizations and do them and hire and come, you know, come once a week, come once a day, come during the lunch break and say, this is what we're going to do for the next eight weeks, these are our goals. So a little bit more structured, but I think a lot of it is permission from the, uh, from the organization that hey, this is okay, we want this, we know we value it, and we know that it's going to improve all of our well-being and workplace setting. Um, so I think those are my two suggestions are to have, to encourage informal practices, like taking lunch or um, you know having having a coffee room that's like a welcoming place, um, and then and then maybe bringing someone in to do a structured, uh, organized eight weeks, one hour a day, or, you know, after work, or you know that that kind of thing. Hopefully that answered part of the question. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean I think Jennifer. Uh, makes a good point about creating the structure and those kinds of things. I think the challenge is, is that you know, the, the mindfulness approach is really relatively new in the workplace. I mean, it's been, it's been around for a while, but it's really started to take uh, gain some traction in, in the corporate setting. So just like any other type of change, uh, you have to introduce it properly, and you have to get by it. And you have to get by it. So if you're trying to implement a program in a, in a corporate organization, uh, you have to get buy-in at the top first, right? Because without executive leadership support, 
we can't hope that, that the mid-level staff or the entry-level staff are going to not only embrace it, but participate in it. And uh, Kevin had referenced Dan Peake in, in his portion of the talk, and I highly encourage people to go out there and, and find his, his information. He also gives a great anecdotal story about a company called Atlassian. Um, and how effective they are at building corporate culture. And one of the ways that they did that is they created a day within the work week where employees got to work on whatever they wanted to work on. Right? We've all heard this story before, Google and, and some of these other tech companies, but he gives a very specific example of how this company utilized this and let employees work on whatever they wanted to work on. It could be a personal project. It could be something not related to work whatsoever. And ultimately what they ended up doing was producing tremendous amounts of uh, insight and success for the organization, fixes to problems and things like that. And they built a culture around that. So if you're building a culture around mindfulness practices and how you create balance within uh, your organization, you have to start with that. As Peter Drucker always said that corporate culture eats strategy for breakfast. So we talk about what's the strategy to implement, what's the strategy to implement, but you have to really start with the culture, right? And then in education, I'm actually hoping to learn what I can uh, and start from the mindfulness aspect and how might we be able to incorporate it into education in a more seamless and, and, and process-driven way. And when uh, we originally set up this talk, um, Working with uh, the doctoral students, I know from personal experience the stress level that goes into being a doctoral student. Well, there's the same amount of stress level as being a first-time student. And really being able to kind of incorporate some of that mindfulness into the education process to help me get over those hurdles, to help me push through the 50th revision of my dissertation, or whatever the case happens to be, so that you can continue on. So I see a lot of positive benefits to that. I know the healthcare industry can talk about uh, cost savings for healthcare industry and, and improved health overall and things of that nature. I'm not certainly qualified to, to spout all those quotes, but thank you. Can I add one more yeah. um, you don't have to have a degree in mindfulness to practice it or teach it to other people. So you guys got a tidbit today. Show up at work on Monday and and say, so So this is coming from what I was reading about that congressman who's trying to get Congress to meditate and having a really hard time. And he's, he's got a lot of perseverance. So he says, why don't we stop and, and take a deep breath before we start this meeting? Like everybody close their eyes and breathe. And I think he gets a lot of, you know, it, people ignore him and roll their eyes and they don't participate. But he's persevering and trying to change the culture. And so, Anybody can really say, I have an idea, you know, let's all put our phones down for a second and just do whatever you think feels good for your group. Um, turn to the next person and say, hello, how are you this morning? You know, a warm greeting or closing your eyes and taking a deep breath. And I mean, dig into the resources, there's a lot out there, and become that person in the organization that makes the change, the tiny, tiny little culture shift to make it happen. We have to move on, Kevin. <laughs> Other questions? Yes, sir. I know, I want to have This course is all of you. From your experience, we've talked a lot about faculty investment, 
about the engagement. We know for our young citizens of education, it's about the parents, students, so you see a lot of investment from corporations and from political leaders. They're taking on the news, taking cuts in education. Watch the news this morning talking about outsourcing once again from the kids. Don't meet the education requirements. We're seeing more uh, involvement from the corporations of the just wrote this for the next like 45 minutes. Now it's interesting to say that the problem with education purely, in my opinion, is especially like high school, um, uh, just K through 12 really, is about outcome driven. Um, and that comes from the heavy unionization. Um, it's not student-centric at all. It's kind of like healthcare. Healthcare has never been patient-centric. It's physician-centric from trying to move to patient-centric. So it's not until education truly becomes student-centric that they really start understanding that issue and that schools should all be measured on what are they putting out, period. So what I see happen, they'll find those sharks, scripts, I know Google does this, most of them are starting their own charter schools and actually uh, saying, you know what, because you quite frankly feel like anyone that's a, that teaches college in this room will tell you, it's, it's stunning to see from a person different things. You're not mad at the student, you know that they were not equipped uh, with the education that they received, which is really sad. Um, but it's, it's something that you have really good teachers out there to try, but the system is not designed for innovation. It's designed of what's in it for me as a teacher. Um, and I know my friends and teachers don't like hearing that, but that, that's what I see. Because, um, you know, for example, look at bullying, look at all the cases of bullying, and then everybody says, oh, the teachers all do it, we all do it, nothing's done about it. Um, I know in my own case, uh, to tell my mom that I'm not college material, period, it's never be shit saying stuff like that. School should be a time of inspiring people to greatness and supporting them and teaching in different styles so you don't have to deal with the ADHD issues because you're engaging me instead of turning on and why have you watch a movie or you know just you're know, doing things that are completely disengaging. So I think education has failed drastically. Um, and I think the colleges are picking it up mostly in the for-profit and non-profit uh, other schools because they don't have a choice because that's you know what's going to go there if you don't have an innovative program. So that's my take on it. Yeah, I've actually done a lot of research on this, especially in the public school education, which I would not understand very claim that, that I have a fix or even the slightest approach uh, starting to fix that. But we're starting to see a huge shift in the trend in what, what they refer to as progressive education. So it's an alternative type of modality for delivering education, sometimes we refer to as hack schooling. Okay, there's a fantastic YouTube video out there. You just type in hack schooling. There's a young 14-year-old kid, 13, 14-year-old kid that shares his experience of how he creates his own content, you know, what he wants to learn for the day, and how he goes about getting the information, and how he's applying the knowledge on a day-to-day -day basis uh, outside of a traditional classroom type of uh, fix. If you really want to know what's broke with the public education system, watch a documentary called Waiting for Superman. It, it kind of makes you sick to your stomach a little bit. But it needs to be fixed in order to, when we're looking at students as they come into the education system, kind of then, then rolling it uh, past the college level and what does it look like for corporations, uh, you're seeing a big shift right now in larger corporations to bring education in-house for their employees. So you see, you're starting to see a lot bigger shift in the trend of uh, chief learning officer, 
a lot of organizations are bringing on more of a chief learning officer. Sometimes it tends to come from an HR-related background, but not necessarily. Uh, and they're looking for these individuals to help develop programs specifically to train the employees within that organization that's directly relevant to the type of work and the type of skill set that that employer needs. Because they can't wait for the students to go to a four-year school and take five or six years to get it done and then really not be trained at the level that that, that, that corporation wants on a specific skill set that directly translates into the job performance there. So they're seeing a lot of that. There's some partnerships going on with uh, colleges and things like that directly with some of the, the very large employers to help customize the curriculum um, for, for those individuals. But there has to be a shift. And again, it, it really ties back to being able to be engaged. Right? I mean, if you're not engaged in any process, you're not going to be good at it. Whatever it is, whether it's education or whether it's job performance or whatever the case is. So you have to be able to actively be a participant in the process. And if it's not delivered in a way that's interesting and intriguing to you, you're not going to be a better person. Furthermore, <laughs> any other final questions? All right. Well, I want to just thank you all for, for being here, and um, hopefully you can uh, gain some insight by some of the shares from the Yeah. Okay. Just another 22 minutes, sir. Uh, I just, uh, yeah, again, I'll let Kevin finish his thank yous. I personally want to thank each and every one of you for coming out. I know this is probably not the top place for you to be on Saturday. Uh, after working a long work week and all the different things that you have working on. But thank you very much for being out here. Spend some time after we break session here and talk to the folks from IDEA, uh, talk to Dr. Gustavo from SAM, learn a little bit more about those organizations, look at some of the materials we have in the back for you. Again, the notes and, and things like that and the presentations are there. So interact and engage with the materials. And we'll be around to answer some individual personal questions as well. Dr. Bishop has an awesome sense of humor, so we need to hear some of that from him. Uh, real quick show of hands, how many of you in the future would prefer like a Saturday morning or would prefer a night during the week like uh, 6 o'clock at night? Say 6 o'clock at night during the week, raise your hand. Okay, Saturday morning as it was. Uh, it's hard for you to do both. <laughs> so, um, yes? They most of the people when it comes Saturday morning. That's awesome. Right? <laughs> oh my god. Oh, thank you. So um, we'll, we'll uh, uh, send things out to some future events and then feel free to email me on specific topics that you would like to have in the future. Uh, and we'll kind of keep continuing on and then getting your speakers on May 30th. We're having our empowerment to our annual breakfast. I wasn't here, so we breakfast on a Saturday morning for those people that are here. Um, and make sure that you try to attend. Because people that aren't here, make sure you try to attend. Uh, but anyway, that will be the, uh, the keynote for that will be Chris McWhorter, who's the uh, chief um, experience, or the chief uh, executive officer and president of Scripps. And uh, he's got a book that he's put out, uh, Frontline Leader, so he'll be talking about that. Uh, so if you're interested in that, let me know. Otherwise, give us topics, and thanks again. Enjoy the rest of your day. The biggest thing is, you know, if you leave here and there's no changes, then you've done nothing. 
So really, you know, apply things to your life and look at what are different things. Ask people, hey, what's your perspective on my leadership or my abilities or this or that? And then also seek out to mentor people because the best thing you really know how to do impact other people's lives around. So that, thank you very much and you all have a great day.